Welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. And this is Dan. And we're heading into summer's eve, if you will. It is late spring, and June is nearly upon us. Have you got any big summer plans, Dan? Well, uh, we're going to go to the beach. And right now, I am just fully engaged, like about 24 hours a day. Thinking about cicadas, I'm, I'm really enjoying this brood coming out and like learning every fun fact I can about them. That because they're so loud at our house, you could look under our tree and there's just husks like piled. It's probably like a hundred thousand. Not even exaggerating in my quarter acre yard. They're they're pretty wild, and when you start to learn about them, so I, I right now they they've been you know gestating for 17 years, which means they've entered their adolescence. And now they're out, all out partying and living their best lives. And so I've been cheering them on, letting, letting them kind of uh, enjoy my yard there, even though they're loud and they swoop down at me when I go outside. It's a coming of age story. Indeed. And you know I like me a coming of age story. Exactly. Have you eaten any cicadas? I haven't gone that far. No. Okay. I, I know that's a thing. Have you? Uh, back when... I was 14, the last batch. I ate quite a few as like a stunt, like a geek act. But I've eaten one this go-round just to show my brother that the stories were true. Good for you. <laughs> Perhaps. Bugs gross me out. I've, I've never been about the novelty of bugs being in my food. I know that's like a, a whole subgenre of novelty food eating, but that's it's never been one for me. No, what worries me now is I saw a video at one point of, like, somebody stomps on a praying mantis or something, and this huge parasitic worm comes out. Uh-oh. And so that's that's what I concern myself with, so. Okay. You have to be careful uh, eating anything raw. There was, like, an Australian boy a couple years ago who ate a slug and, like, <laughs> the parasites inside ate his brain, so. <laughs> be uh, Be cautious. In my brother's words, he got his world rocked. <laughs> I guess that's one way to put it. Yeah, that's just one of many reasons that I am not on eating slugs right now. But uh, I have gotten some compelling recordings of the cicada audio, so it is fun when they come to town. And they, they make me think about how I'm going to be 48 the next time. It's like Haley's Comet, except way more annoying. <laughs> what's the coolest space thing you've seen since you brought up Halley's comet like as far as an astronomical event maybe it's just fresh in my mind but the the eclipse of 2017 blew my mind or maybe it was early 2018 i can't remember yeah that was cool that's that's second for me was the 2017 solar eclipse my number one is i remember the hail bop comet from i think 1997 the one that the cultists killed themselves to, like, send their souls to. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember this. And that that was, like, the most impressive. It really was, like, in Mario Galaxy or whatever. Or, uh, or, or Avatar. Just, I can see why medieval people would be, like, freaking out about this. Yeah. I have seen 
meteor showers a couple times when I've been camping. It's just like little streaks across the sky. Right. Yeah, those are cool too. But I'm not on board with supermoons. Supermoons get too much hype. And it's like, it's the same moon. Don't, 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 don't try to make this special. It's like a little closer. <laughs> so, since we're heading into summer now, some of us are probably going to be taking road trips. Especially, uh, this is Memorial Day weekend coming up. Sometimes I get it confused with Labor Day. But this is the one that comes first. And so some people are hitting the road, as in our film today, which is Tourist Trap. This is not the 1970s horror film of the same title, but an original made-for-TV movie featured on The Wonderful World of Disney in 1998. But I have a bit of a story about how I came across this film. So, Dan, had you ever heard of this movie before? No, definitely not. All right, well, there's a tale of discovery and rediscovery that I associate with this movie, because I initially saw it on TV. I assume it was on The Wonderful World of Disney, but I didn't take note of what the show was at the time. We just happened to be watching TV, and this movie came on. Around this same time... I liked to watch a show on TBS called Dinner and a Movie. Did you ever catch that one? I remember that. I remember being fascinated by it. It was like in between the commercial breaks, you would have these, I don't remember who it was, but it was like a couple people either prepping dinner, eating dinner, discussing it, and then cutting back to the movie. And I was fascinated by the concept. I don't know if I've thought about it in like 10 years, but... I would be interested to see a modern take on one of those. Yeah, I liked it. They would be cooking a thematically tied dish to the featured film. And yeah, it would just be showing the movie and it would keep cutting back to this studio where these hosts were sitting and preparing the dish and then sharing the dish at the end. I, I, I think if you read into it, it was probably a big influence on my public access TV series. Interesting, yeah. I can see the parallels. The episode of it that I remember best, that was for sure an episode of Dinner in a Movie, was the one where they showed Harry and the Hendersons, which is a movie about Bigfoot, and they prepared foot-long hot dogs. Uh. So we saw this movie, Taurus Trap, and I knew it was a TV movie, or, or just that I that's where I had seen it. I think shortly after I saw it the first time, I was able to rent it at a video store on the West Coast to show my grandfather. Starting in like 1997, we would go to visit him in the Pacific Northwest every summer. And something that he and I would do together is we would go sit out in his RV and watch movies out there. So this was, this was one of them, I'm pretty sure. So you saw it on TV, but then you also rented it? Right. So, and, and probably not that long later, it was available on VHS. Gotcha. One of the kind of quirks that I appreciate about the home video market boom in the 90s is that there were these movies made. I mean, obviously you're familiar with direct-to-video, and I guess some are like that, but... 
you can still track down like Hunchback of Notre Dame 2 if you really want to, the one where Quasimodo has pity sex. <laughs> you know, there was like a VHS era where the movies were cranked out and it was like meant to be temporary almost. It was like, get the VCR adopters their films and then don't worry about like digitizing it this film doesn't need to live forever it just needs to make a few bucks now it's like this i don't know soon to be vacuum of i would say artistic culture but maybe that's a stretch for a lot of what actually got pumped out on direct to video but it does seem like some of these have the potential to become rare or lost movies so how did you find this one dan (laughs) you mentioned it on the pod last week, you briefly described it, and I started searching for it, and you had said the name was Taurus Trap, and I had trouble finding it at first, and there was like a three-minute window where I was convinced that this movie did not exist, because there was no movie on IMDb called Taurus Trap, which had Paul Giamatti, so I was like, either he's messing with me, or he like dreamed this movie or something. But then I eventually found it. It shows up as a TV episode on IMDb because it aired as part of the Wonderful World of Disney program. And then once I I managed to find it there, I was able to track it down on Letterboxd. And I eventually found it streaming on YouTube with Malaysian piracy warnings at the beginning. So I think somebody violated Malaysian law uploading it to YouTube. But I downloaded the, the YouTube file and was able to just watch it on my computer. Well, I'm glad you said that because for a long time after this maybe second viewing, I came to believe I might have dreamed this movie. (laughs) Because it disappeared quickly and it was hard to find evidence of what I had seen. Because the key things I remembered were that it was about a family driving around in an RV and that there was a pivotal yard sale scene, a yard sale flashback scene that involves a historic chair. So, like, flash forward maybe, like, eight years or something when I was in high school, and I'm talking with my family, hey, do you remember that movie? And after I described it, they did remember it. And I was like, what movie was that? And nobody had any idea. So then I got to, like, Googling. But any combinations or permutations that I was trying of yard sale chair scene movie were not getting me anywhere. And if I would look up RV movie, I would always just be led to the Robin Williams film RV, which came out in the 2000s. In some ways, it's pretty similar. I mean, it's about a a family driving around in an RV. I, I'm i not 100% on which title is better. <laughs> I mean, RV at least fits what's happening. Taurus Trap is debatable. Right, because RV is kind of lazy. It's like, oh. Definitely. Very it's lazy. It's like the, the same person who named Anteater would have named RV. It's like, he's eating ants. Let's call him an Anteater. They're driving in an RV. Let's call it RV. <laughs> I don't know if you're if you're getting here with that connection, but not only is it a similar concept, but I'm pretty sure the movie RV stole the poster 
design. Okay, yes, we will get to that. Because I spent my college years thinking about this question of what was this movie? Because, I mean, I am a fan of yard sales anyway, which may be why this scene stuck with me. But I had this entire yard sale scene, which I promise we will explain and describe, (laughs) seared into my memory. Like I could just at any moment go back and play this scene in my head like popping in a DVD, but nothing else from the movie. And (laughs) jump ahead to my senior year of college in 2012 when I discovered Reddit. This was a pivotal moment that we addressed in our Rock of Fire Explosion podcast episode. In my initial wanderings exploring Reddit, I came across the subreddit called Tip of My Tongue, the premise of which is to post things that you vaguely remember and you give a vague description and then say, what was that? So basically perfect for my purposes. And sure enough, I described what was that movie where the family is driving around in an RV and a pivotal scene has to do with a historic chair at a yard sale. And they said, oh, Taurus Trap, 1998. (laughs) No hesitation. No hesitation. Maybe at, uh, maybe at, Halloween time will come back to the power of Reddit because something that steered me there was uh, at one point, I think in like 2010, they recovered a lost Nickelodeon TV movie. Did you catch that story, Dan? I have read about this. This is one of the better lost media recovery stories I've read. So, like, there was a one off airing of a Halloween movie on Nickelodeon in like 2000 and the movie was called Crybaby Lane and Nickelodeon never aired it again and so years later internet creepypasta writers discovered this oddity in the listing history of Nickelodeon oh what was this scary movie that they only ever showed once was it cursed and I think its reputation was only enhanced by the few people who claimed to have seen it probably saw it when they were like very susceptible to spooky things, you know? Right. So it was all these rumors of what it could be, but then it eventually reached somebody who was like, oh, hey, I recorded that the one time it aired. And then people, you know, were saying, oh, is this true? Because the person just said that they had the tape and then they like posted a little promo scene from the start and people were debating, oh, did they just doctor this? Is this some fake trailer? But then, like, the next day, they posted the whole movie. And so now you can go on YouTube and you can watch Crybaby Lane. Amazing. So, back on track. Back on the road. Similar story here with Taurus Trap, 1998. Because I now found myself in 2012 reunited with the movie... And went and purchased a VHS copy. And sure enough, the poster is identical to the RV poster. It is an RV teetering on the tip of a mountain. And so, like, the RV image, like, had eclipsed any memory that I had of what 
the tourist trap marketing looked like. Very strange. Yeah, pretty wild. One reviewer on Letterboxd did a little bit of investigation. He initially speculated that perhaps a later VHS release mimicked the marketing of the RV movie. But he said he found one from 2001, which is a few years before the RV movie, which came in 2005, that had the the same iconic teetering RV on the mountain that RV would use a few years later. So, I mean, either it was somebody had it planted in their subconscious and just came up with it, or somebody said, hey, remember that one obscure Disney movie that had that interesting poster? Let's steal that idea for our RV poster. But now I finally had the movie in my hand, and I gave it a watch again, knew that someday I would have to talk about it with someone, and and here we are. (laughs) But I now looked a little more into the official history, and indeed this was an installment on the wonderful world of Disney. Which, have you read any about the history of that series, Dan? No, all I know is that it aired movies. Yes, it did air movies, but it has a pretty impressive pedigree, because if you look it up, it'll take you to the Wikipedia article on the Walt Disney Anthology Television Series. Technically, I guess this is considered one incarnation, one iteration of the show that started with Disneyland back in 1955. Whoa. And I guess the idea was that Walt Disney, like, reached out to television networks, asking them to help fund, basically reaching out to anybody that he could to seek sponsors for Disneyland. And a TV network said, okay, we'll give you money for your park if you make a TV show for us. And I guess, in turn, he just made a TV show that was a big commercial for Disneyland. But it's pretty interesting because it had installments that were like Fantasyland or Tomorrowland themed. And each would present an hour-long subject tied to that genre. So a Tomorrowland episode might interview Werner von Braun about the space program. Or... A Frontierland episode could be a whole movie about Davy Crockett that launches a coonskin cap fad. Oh, that's really interesting because when Pirates of the Caribbean came out around uh, like 2001, 2002, I can't remember when the first one came out, there was a whole boom of movies inspired by iconic theme park attractions. And you got... What's the haunted elevator one called? I forget what that's called. The Tower, oh, the Tower of, Terror. of Terror. You had Tomorrowland. I'm trying to think if there were other ones I knew of, but uh, none of them captured the magic in the bottle that Pirates of the Caribbean did. But it turns out, I guess, that that fad dates all the way back to the 50s now. I'm, I'm learning something here today. So, fun fact about the Tower of Terror movie, Dan. It was an original production... For the wonderful world of Disney. Whoa, really? Maybe maybe a year before Tourist Trip. So it was actually back before um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Didn't they do a later one, though? Maybe not. But I'm looking this up. It starred Steve Gutenberg and a young Kirsten Dunst. 
That's pretty amazing. 1997 film. Yeah, it was like one of the first. Because as the years went by, the Disneyland TV show turned into the wonderful world of color to hype color TV technology. And then it had a couple different names. It turned more into just a way of showing Disney movies on TV. So a lot of it was not original content. They would just, you know, show Toy Story on TV, say. But in the 90s, um, I think right around the time they bought ABC, Michael Eisner wanted to push this like showcase. Just use it, this new network that was theirs, to just hype the Disney brand as much as possible. And he actually started hosting the show, which the Disney TV show had not had a host since Walt Disney himself. Not to go too deep down the rabbit hole, although I'm sure you're picking up the vibe that that's what I want to do. A book that I would recommend is called Disney War, and it's just a detailed account of Michael Eisner's time leading the company. And it talked about how, like... When he pitched this idea of, oh, let's bring back the Disney TV show Strong and have a host again, the various underling executives were thinking, oh, who could we get? Maybe Julie Andrews, maybe Tom Hanks, somebody really well-known and family-friendly with a history as a performer and an entertainer. And Michael Eisner said, no, I want to do it. (laughs) i want to be the new walt disney and i'm your boss so that's what's gonna happen that's bold (laughs) but i remember as a little kid just him being the face of disney and him like presenting these movies maybe next to a guy in a goofy suit or something so another formative early movie host on tv there you go and so as part of this push Disney Telefilms was founded to create a string of original movies for the wonderful world of Disney block, which included, yes, the Tower of Terror film in 1997, the movie that we, I promise, will finally start talking about here soon, Taurus Trap, uh, and a few others that I think are almost all better remembered than Taurus Trap. (laughs) For instance, there was the adaptation of the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella musical starring Brandy and a predominantly African-American cast. Yeah, my wife really likes that one. We put it on for my girls, and I think they're a little too young. They still like the cartoons more than the live action, but she really wants to show them that one. But yeah, I didn't realize that that was part of that. I remember seeing commercials for that one, and I I think I did watch it on TV. I think that's one that probably got aired more than once, and I I don't know how often Tourist Trap got aired. But what's interesting is even now, like, if you go today to the Wikipedia article, and maybe an avid listener will change this, but if you look under Disney Telefilms, There's a list of movies that they made for Wonderful World of Disney with a date for each one that aired. And mysteriously, Taurus Trap is just missing. (laughs) 
it's not there. Every other one has a link to an article with pictures and summaries, and it just jumps from March 1998 to May 1998. And the April 1998 entry is, is, is not there. That's so weird. It's like a planet deleted from the memory log. But luckily, we are here to share with you the myth of what Taurus Trap 1998 was all about. Are you ready? I have one more question for you since since you seem in the zone on the movies. How does the wonderful world of Disney relate to Disney Channel original movies? Are they just totally separate lines of made-for-TV movies produced by Disney? That's a great question. Maybe we will revisit this. I've got at least a couple DCOMs I want to throw on at some point. So uh, if you check in with us and we're covering, say, the 13th year or Read It and Weep or um, maybe Zombies and Zombies 2, I will have an answer to that question. All right. At the moment, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's some overlap in terms of talent working on the films. I'd believe it. So, Dan, at this point, do you think I've oversold this movie? <laughs> well, you haven't really talked about the movie itself very much, just that it was something that got clogged in your memory. I mean, I think I think you've sold it correctly. It's a TV okay. it's a TV movie. It is a TV movie that was formative for you as a kid, which I don't think is necessarily a testament to its its prestige level in any way. Yeah, I guess nothing I've said is really disputable. It's all been <laughs> statements of fact. Some more irrefutable facts. This movie tells the story of the Pipers, who are a family living in Wisconsin. The star of the film is Daniel Stern, who plays patriarch George Piper. Now, Daniel Stern, I guess he's one of the bandits in Home Alone. What do you know Daniel Stern from, Dan? Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, do you have any overarching opinions about Daniel Stern? So, not so many. From this movie, I get the sense that, like, a pillar of his comedic persona is, like, freaking out about things. Yeah, so I really like Daniel Stern. I'm really fond of him. I don't know why. It's one of those subjective things that I just can't defend on any kind of justifiable level but he's just you know how i've talked about there are some actors and actresses who for whatever reason i just don't like daniel stern's the opposite i just like him and you're right that he's really good at freaking out he like any good daniel stern movie is going to have one moment where he does his little shriek i say everyone but that's not actually true because perhaps the thing that he is now most iconic for me and part of the reason i'm so affectionate towards him is that he was the narrator of The Wonder Years, a TV show that profoundly shaped my view of growing up and life when I was a young adult. And he's amazing as the narrator in that. But he also co-starred in and directed Rookie of the Year. When I was a kid, I really liked baseball. And that was like a fun kids-themed baseball movie. Oh, man. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's my favorite kids' baseball. Well, there's the Sandlot. Sandlot, also. yeah, Sandlot tops it. But 
I I definitely like Rookie of the Year too. I like the idea of breaking your arm and suddenly having a superpower arm as a result. It was a great fantasy wish fulfillment thing. Sticky Bandits, of course. Or I guess they're the Wet Bandits in the first one and the Sticky Bandits in the second one. <laughs> Another thing I knew him from. So this is kind of a diversion here. I've been watching, I'm not very proud to admit this given his place in the pop culture sphere. I've been watching a lot of Woody Allen movies. In fact, I've been watching his filmography in chronological order and been finding a lot of value in it, even when I don't always enjoy the movie and don't always enjoy his persona. It's it's been an enlightening experience for me. But it's kind of insane how many number of comedic actors and to some extent dramatic actors that Woody Allen has worked with through the years. And it turns out that I've actually watched almost all of the principals in this film. Daniel Stern, Laura Haggerty, and David Rash, or Rasha, I don't know how you say it, have all been in Woody Allen movies that I've watched in the past couple weeks. And Paul Giamatti is in a later Woody Allen movie that I will uh, be watching, presuming I keep going through his filmography in in a couple weeks. Um, Ryan Reynolds has not been in any Woody Allen movies. Sorry if I just spoiled a a beat you were going to leave for for later there, Brian, but. (laughs) Oh, well, we'll have to see. Uh, And anyway, he hasn't been in a Woody Allen movie yet. There's still time. Yet. That's, that's true. So Daniel Stern has also been in two Woody Allen movies that I've watched recently. So anyways, he's just a guy that I like and I was really excited to watch a movie where he's the lead. And also he's a dad because I'm a dad too. And I find myself more empathetic with movie dads than I was. And I have a couple more thoughts on that as we kind of go through the movie. But, uh, yeah, I just like Daniel Stern. That's kind of the thing that I'm trying to, to convey here. I think you did it. And when we meet this family, we kind of meet them one at a time because the message that they're driving home is that the various members are out of touch with each other. So as the movie opens, we are hearing the mom speaking to each of them, but it's over this answering machine. And like each family member is getting up and starting the day and they have a special message from the mother for them, though only one of them is ever there in the room at a time. This opening left me a little cold. It was kind of weird. It felt like an infomercial for the product. It had memo minder on it. I don't know if that was actually a product where you had like memos you would leave for people and they would hit play and hear it. But this was just kind of felt very product placement e, not necessarily servicing the plot. Yeah, good point. It is very focused on the gadget that we're seeing. But as we learn about each of these characters in turn, we meet Daniel Stern as George, the dad, and he works at a bank. I guess he's like a money manager and he advises people on their investments, probably lends out money as banks do, expecting uh, returns on their investments. But his heart is not in that. Kind of just drifts off into Walter Mitty dreams while people yammer about how they want to spend their money. Because his passion is for history 
And ever since he was a kid, he's been inspired by these Civil War journals kept by his ancestor, Jeremiah Piper, which is where Paul Giamatti comes in. Because you could call this a ghost. I think it's just a figment of George's imagination. Yeah, it's like a Harvey situation. Yeah, Jeremiah is hanging around and, like, George talks to him. So, this was 98, I think we said it came out. I saw it listed as 97 a couple places. I said 97 last week, but if the air date is to be believed, it was 1998. Yeah, like, filmaffinity.com had it listed as 1997. But both IMDb and Letterboxd had it listed as 1998. I think we can go with 1998. So this was before Sideways really brought Paul Giamatti out of, I think, his typecasting as a neurotic short guy and into a prestige actor discussion where now he can be cast in anything and it'll be just kind of interesting that they chose, like, I think he was a villain in a Spider-Man movie, which is just kind of funny. But he's the type of guy now who commands that type of respect. I don't think that that was true in the late 90s. I think he was a, uh, not quite up at that level, but kind of looking back, when you have Daniel Stern, who I personally consider a beloved comedic actor of the 90s, and then you also have Paul Giamatti, a prestigious actor himself and there's like significant portions of this movie that are just them playing off each other which really work for me like they're they're always uh that fun and funny and paul giamatti is great as kind of this snarky civil war soldier and daniel stern kind of on the edge of sanity and losing his cool um it's feels like a retroactive casting coup in my opinion it's pretty pretty solid uh top line there yeah, they do have some funny bits together. There's a moment when they're like having a conversation in the bathroom. Like George is talking to himself in the mirror and Jeremiah is there. But then it like segues to a little later and George is in bed with his wife and <laughs> Jeremiah is there in the bed and he even like takes the covers. That made me laugh. <laughs> Julie Haggerty plays the mom whose name I guess is Bess, and she runs an antique store. So she's very into antique furniture. This will be important later. And I guess she's so busy running the store that she's never at home. There was there was a few moments where there was like jokes that I was surprised was in a family-focused movie because they had some adult implications. And there was like a suggestion that they are never around enough to share a bed together let's say although then you're right we get the scene of them essentially sharing a bed together although paul giamatti is there as well too so i don't know but there was a few moments where they had some innuendos in it that i enjoyed you're right i saw several references in reviews of this movie to national lampoon's family vacation i can see that yeah i don't know i like it doesn't ever really verge into that body of territory, but there are a couple moments. Right. I think it was just maybe a, an inspiration. And right. I feel like this w probably would have landed at PG if it had hit Cineplex. Yeah, I think you're right. 
the family has a teenage daughter named Rachel. I guess she's a senior in high school. And she is dating a guy. Did they say he was 24? <laughs> I feel like his age was left somewhat ambiguous where she was constantly lying about it. Wasn't Yeah, there was argument about it, but definitely in his 20s. And he's struggling to hold down a job. And his name is Stork. I just, yeah, I want to savor this moment while we acknowledge that the character's name was Stork. It just immediately goes into, we've had, we've had some good names. We've had Meat from Last Day of Summer. We've had Balkan Skull. We've had, I gotta look it up. What was the, the name of the douchebag boyfriend in uh, Some Kind of Wonderful? Hardy Jens? Yes. There you go. Just a lot of great names for tool bag characters. And I would say one thing that I've learned from my experience hosting this podcast is that the the tool bag guy characters get the best names in the movies. And here we got a, a guy named Stork. And I just like the word Stork was tattooed on my brain as I was watching this movie. It's just like, no matter what else would you're going to say about this movie, it had a character who was a tool bag boyfriend named Stork. And so I, I was just smiling, you know, <laughs> man, this might be a, this might be an episode where I'm reevaluating my rating as we go. <laughs> Quick power ranking of tool bag male character names. Let's just say our top five, unless you can think of another one. Let's say our top five are Hardy Jens, Stork, Meat, Bulk, and Skull. Do you have any favorites there? Oh man, I I'd put Meat pretty high. I not as a character, but like the name, <laughs> great name. I'm with you. That was going to be at the top of my list too. Okay, I I think I might give Stork second. <laughs> uh, although Bulk and Skull are like equally good, and I think you gotta yeah. have them as a package. So I don't know if they get second or third. There's synergy between them too. It's not Bulk. Comma skull. It's bulk and skull. Bulk and skull. Power Rangers. <laughs> Com- rounding out the family is son Josh, who is not much of a character. He only really has significant story beats at the end of the movie. Uh, early on, as he's kind of having his midlife crisis, realizing that he doesn't enjoy his job and he's out of touch with his family... George pulls in at a gas station where he runs into this couple of RV enthusiasts. They roll in in their big rig and it's all covered with bumper stickers of the places that they've been. And they talk about how great it is to have an RV. So Dan, what is your experience with RVs? I have almost no experience with an RV. My most direct experience with an RV is that I'm now on my HOA board and we have a storage lot where many of our residents store RVs. And we recently rewrote the regulations for that storage lot. And so I had to think a lot about what are the regulations for storing an RV on a piece of asphalt. So that is my, I've never spent time in them or traveled with them. What about you? Well, like I said, I used to hang out with my grandfather in his, when it was usually just parked in the yard and watch movies out there. But I have a lot of relatives who live on the West Coast, and 
various families among them have tended to have RVs. So we have taken some road trips. We have actually camped at some campgrounds. And I think they're cool. I mean, any car is kind of like a little room that moves around. And this just builds on that concept. Right. My wife and I have occasionally romanticized the idea of selling our house, getting an RV and spending a summer or a year or some absurdly long period of time just living in an RV driving around the country. They are expensive. I saw my dad once watching a video on YouTube about the topic and the guy hosting the video was like, this is a rich person's hobby. Like, if you aren't ready to drop at least $100,000, this hobby is not for you. Wow. <laughs> but, expensive as it may be, George is so inspired by this exchange with this couple, slash ashamed that he himself has never been anywhere, that without consulting his family at all, George leases an even bigger RV than the one we just saw, and rolls up in it to his house and says, Okay, family, we are off on a three-week road trip. So this brought me back to one of my all-time commercial marketing pet peeves. There's kind of two of them that are in similar categories. But when a spouse buys a car for the other, and like that is viewed as this just heroic act of romance... It's like, I don't know, if you're a normal married couple, you share the same finances. So basically what you're saying here is, hey, I made a $40,000 purchase without consulting you. And here it is. And like, that is not heroic to me at all. I would be really annoyed if my spouse spent $40,000 without consulting me, even if it was to try to make me happy. That's not the way to do it. Similar is when, as a surprise family members get pets for each other because it's like, oh, oh, you got me a puppy. That's so sweet. But now I got to take care of this puppy for the next 15 years and like clean up its poop and teach it how to not pee in the house and stuff. It's like, I, couldn't you just got me a gift card to a restaurant or something like that? I don't know. I don't think Dan has any pets. I haven't been to your house in a little while, but is that accurate? That. <laughs> That is accurate, yeah. If you're looking to give away a dog, I'll take one. If anybody listening <laughs> has uh, has some puppies that they don't know what to do with, I'll take one. If you're in the gift giving mood, <laughs> yeah. If you're gonna if you're trying to gift a live animal to one of the hosts of the goods, Brian's your starting point there. I think. Yes, I think just as selfish, if not more, George's itinerary is tailored to the journeys of Jeremiah Piper. It's like the travels that he undertook during his time as a soldier in the Civil War. That's the route they're going to follow. But the upside to this is that we're going to hear some local place names because we are broadcasting from Virginia, and that's where they're going to end up. I always like it when we get local shout-outs. I, I watched this show, The Americans which is about Russian spies who are successfully integrated into American society. And their neighbor works at Langley, a CIA base uh, in Northern Virginia. 
and like every other episode they would have some local reference that I'd be like, oh yeah, that thing. They'd be like, oh, we're going to drive out to Leesburg and go for a hike. Or we're going to go to McLean and visit our friends there. And it's like, I and they would occasionally mention roads and stuff. So yeah, I'm in on anything that makes me feel like I'm the center of attention here. And, and I know these references. I like that too. There's an episode of The X-Files where... As he always does, Mulder is chasing somebody down at the 42-minute mark, and he shouts over the walkie-talkie, he's headed down Chain Bridge Road! When I commute into the office, although I haven't now in more than a year, I drive on Chain Bridge Road, so I appreciate that. So, the family begrudgingly agrees to this, to go on this trip. They're one over, one by one. Rachel, the daughter, agrees on the condition that her dad hires Stork to paint the house, which is a transaction that I like. <laughs> we'll see where this this Stork arc ends up. I feel like this movie did not know what to do with Stork. That's kind of my summary. It's like, <laughs> sometimes he's the D-bag boyfriend, sometimes he's like the goofy stoner comic relief character. Sometimes he's almost the villain. I don't know. There's like a sliding scale of stork villainy. <laughs> it's like, how bad is he going to get? And ultimately, they don't go very far with it. I feel like the screenwriter wrote one draft of this screenplay, and or at least the stork portions, and changed their mind about four times about what stork's role in the movie was. Taurus Trap 2, the stork portions. <laughs> Stork Chronicles. <laughs> As they're heading out, Stork warns Josh that he needs to keep an eye on his sister and let Stork know if she starts getting too overly friendly with any guys on this trip. And this is where we get a, a hint that we don't know, yeah, how Stork is going to go. He, he may be on an arc towards villainy, perhaps. But now they're on the road, and the bulk of the movie is made up of little vignettes of RV-based pratfalls. Like, an RV joke spun out into a scene. Right. This is what I would call the promise of the premise, a phrase we've used on this podcast a few times. It's like, if you pitch this movie as, hey, we have a family reluctantly on a RV road trip and a bumbling dad... And what trouble are they going to get into? We have about five or six scenes here of, of this thing happening to various levels of effectiveness across these gags, I would say. Yeah, so like they're pulling out of the driveway and because it's so big, they're destroying stuff in their yard. And like the first time they pull into a campground, it rains and like it weighs so much that the tires sink down into the ground. There's a silly scene where they're driving along and Daniel Stern is taking a shower. <laughs> Which, any time that I've ever seen anybody even use the bathroom in an RV, usually it's stopped. I mean, sometimes it's fun to do it while it's moving, but a shower, at least, I would wait until it was stationary. I agree. That did not seem very plausible to me. But because the, the wife is driving and the dad is showering... They're not, like, talking to each other or looking at each other. And the RV comes to a stop where there's, like, a street fair going on. 
and Daniel Stern reaches out for a towel and as he's groping around for the towel steps out and manages to step out of the RV entirely until he's out in the street actually he climbs out and he steps onto another car so he's like standing on a car in the middle of the road and meanwhile the RV and the rest of his family has moved on not realizing that he got out the mechanics of this were very dubious in my opinion yeah it, it strains credulity <laughs> but you know as i've made clear thus far i enjoy daniel stern making a fool of himself so i i was at least smiling as this happened there's another scene at a campground where this big fat guy climbs on <laughs> and says that the bathroom in his RV is blocked and can he use theirs. Would you say this scene was representative of the film's comedy as a whole? Or was this a dark mark? I thought this was hilarious. This guy was giving off John Candy vibes and just the same thing that John Candy does where he seems like a nice guy, but also very off-putting and boundary pushing doesn't really respect personal boundaries i mean maybe i'm just thinking of the version of john candy that appears in planes trains and automobiles that's true this does feel like that movie i will select it which is a movie i will certainly select at some point for this podcast but i like this scene i don't know i don't know if it was representative or not but the best part of it is like the grossest part i guess is that he's he's sitting on the toilet clearly doing his number two because he's sitting on the toilet and they're eating dinner, and he's, like, trying to chat with them, poking his head through, I guess, it's like a curtain instead of a door in front of the bathroom. Yeah, this bathroom doesn't have a door for some reason. <laughs> I've never seen that before, which, that just seems like bad design, because bathrooms, listen, you go there to have things exit your body and go away that you may not want in the air in your normal life. And so if you don't have a door, then that stuff's going to be getting to your main air. I don't want that. I want a door to block that air away from the rest of my air. So if that's actually how that RV is designed, that seems like a serious flaw in my opinion. I will say when I finally learned the title again of Taurus Trap 1998 and looked it up, this scene was like the only scene that was up on YouTube. Also, it's like building to a Daniel Stern freakout <laughs> because this guy is, you know, getting more and more obnoxious and eventually Daniel Stern is shouting. And I, this is where I got the sense that this is like a key bit of his comedy that they had to have X number of beats where Daniel Stern is anxious and yelling. But I will say probably our biggest laugh in the film <laughs> was a moment where the guy in the bathroom it gets very quiet for a second and then he peeks out and says get my wife <laughs> <laughs> everyone is very terror stricken and they say why and he says she'll know <laughs> and <laughs> something about that sudden abrupt change we cracked up that's good I did realize when I saw it now that another scene that's stuck in my memory alongside the yard sale scene is at one point the family is driving along 
And this really felt like a moment lifted from a National Lampoon movie. Because for no real reason, the dad starts singing, Here Comes Thumpkin, (laughs) the finger-naming song. And just as he gets to Here Comes Tall Man, the middle finger, as it were, he is gesturing wildly by the window of the car as this violent biker gang drives by. For some reason in my memory, I remember actually seeing the finger, but it's like creatively edited so that you never do. Yeah, I noticed that. It makes clear what is happening, but always obfuscates where the actual middle finger would appear, which I attribute to, I guess, network standards and rules about what you're allowed to show. Right. But it reminds me, there's a classic gif of Mr. Rogers. Just It's like a 10-second clip from him doing something where you're learning the different fingers, and you just see Mr. Rogers holding up his middle finger in the gif. And uh, I was thinking of that in the way that it carefully obfuscated it, that this is now not gifable to have Daniel Stern randomly flipping the bird to whoever I send it to. Exactly. But so now this gang is chasing the RV and like pounding on it with chains and bats. How often have you been flicked off while you've been driving? I've probably given as good as I've received. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I don't know if I've I've ever had the impulse to give someone the middle finger, but I've been given it twice. And both times it was it was like a condemnation on my driving. It was like I cut someone off or something like that. And I felt really bad about it. Right. Yeah, that's that's when you do it. That's when you get it and that's when you give it. <laughs> but no one has climbed out of their car and shot me or anything. As as it's happened, it's that's where it's stayed and it has not escalated. So I guess there is that potential. I guess where I'm going with that is like, I don't feel like, especially if you're kind of a tough guy, the the act of receiving a finger from a person for a period of a few seconds would not be like a blood feud going forward. It's like, I feel like you'd move on with your life pretty quickly. And we do get a few tourist trap situations, like roadside attractions that are kitschy and weird. So there's like a short little montage. They go to the smallest cave in the world just like a rock with a little carving out of the side of it. And you like put a nickel in and it lights up the little etched cave. I was briefly pondering what is the definition of a cave as I was watching that. It's a good question. But there's not a lot of this stuff. I don't know if Taurus Trap is what I would have titled the film. I don't know what I would have titled the film. (laughs) As we said, RV is a little too lazy, but that's what's staring you in the face. The yard sale movie is what you would call it. That's, that is what I would call it. That's what I called it for a long time, and it led to confusion. Because at this point, as they're driving along, I think it's the kids ask about it, or somehow they get on the subject of how the parents met. It's, it's actually a bit later in the movie, after they've already met the doctor. The doctor asks about it. Okay. Oh, all right. That makes a little sense. Well then let's uh, let's let's move forward because 
at one point they are staying at a KOA style campground. Have you ever been to a KOA, Dan? No. What does KOA stand for? I think it's something of America. I I let me look up what this K is for before I say it wrong. Okay, the K is for campgrounds. <laughs> campgrounds of America. Okay. But they have facilities as shown in this movie. It's like they've got like areas where you can pitch a tent, areas where you can park an RV, and there are communal meeting spaces. And they'll do like a karaoke night. And they'll have like a little building with pool tables and a swimming pool and stuff. Where all the people on their various road trips can mingle. So that's what this area is like. And Daniel Stern is just kind of sitting in a lawn chair shooting the shit with some of these other campers. And Bess goes off to do the laundry in this, like, little laundromat that's there. And she gets bitten by a snake. And this guy who's in the laundromat, too, like, swoops in to save the day. And, of course, he's gonna suck the poison out. And so word comes back to Daniel Stern that someone is sucking his wife's leg in the laundry room. So I thought this scene was set up for a different purpose. Like the, it kind of leads towards in the process of trying to take care of her. It looks more and more suggestive about what is actually going on. And I thought Daniel Stern was going to walk in on them and get the wrong idea. I thought that was exactly what the scene was building towards, but then that didn't happen. I feel like they like that was maybe the original idea and they got talked out of it or something like that. But so I was disappointed at first, but then we get the payoff of the son walking up to the dad with his crowd of buddies who are like out of there smoking cigars or something. He says, dad, some guy's sucking mom's leg in the laundry room, which is just a movie like this does not deserve a punchline like that. I was I was laughing pretty hard when that happened. (laughs) So this is Dr. Early and he's played by that guy Rash. What's his first name? Um, David Rash or Rasha, R-A-S-C-H-E. And this guy does cut a striking profile. I don't know if he's quite dashing. That's kind of the way he's presented as like a, like a Paul Hogan in Crocodile Dundee character here. Like a guy who's very knowledgeable about the wilderness and is adventurous. If you had to describe his look, comparing him to another actor... How would you describe him? I would say young Anthony Hopkins. Uh, and, and like not that young, just like slightly younger. Right. What about you? For me, it was dollar store Willem Dafoe. He had the same kind of creepy intensity with his eyes. Yeah, he has this intense energy and the sense that at some point he might do something creepy. Right. Like... He might not go as far as Anthony Hopkins and eat your skin, but he might he might think about it. He might suck your leg and get some ideas. I could see him shouting at himself in a mirror as the Green Goblin, though. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, in another section of the campground, Rachel, the daughter, runs into a hunk at the pool. And I was very surprised because suddenly... 
Ryan Reynolds is in this movie. Yeah, out of nowhere. Like, for a moment, I was, I was trying to think. It's like I, th- I've seen this guy, <laughs> it, but it couldn't be. But here is young Ryan Reynolds playing a character named Wade. It's great. There was like a period of t- maybe two years. I'm thinking like 97 to 99. So this is right in the thick of that, where the style was these like really big, almost poncho sized polo shirts with just these gargantuan collars, just these huge, ugly ass collars on these polo shirts. And every scene, he's got a different one of these just gnarly freaking yachts of button up shirts. I guess they're polo shirts. They don't button all the way up, but I was enjoying him with this distinctly dated look. Also interesting to note that Wade is Deadpool's name. I think it's Mm. Wade Wilson, but this Wade, as it turns out is Wade early, the son of Dr. Early. So now we have this dual force of emasculation as embodied by the Earlys who are going to threaten George in his role as head of his family. You know, they, the two families start interacting more. They, they seem to keep running into each other. And once the daughter and Ryan Reynolds start hanging out, they are engineering ways for future run-ins to happen. Right, they're hitting it off. And so, Josh, of course, was supposed to report anything like this back to Stork, which he does. <laughs> And so Stork jumps in his van. I think he's got a van. He's got... That's the vehicle it makes sense for him to have in my head. <laughs> Agreed. And he is hightailing it down to Virginia to beat them to the Early's house. Because for some reason he, he hears that this is where this guy lives. And that's where he heads. Dr. Early at one point makes mention that he works at a hospital in Bethesda. And actually, I've been doing construction work at a hospital in Bethesda for the last, like, month and a half. Oh, interesting. And I was thinking, oh, maybe Dr. Early worked here. <laughs> You're looking around for him. Yeah, it was another local shout-out. This movie gets a little bit bogged down in... Well, let me put it this way. There's a scene earlier in this film... When the RV gets stuck in mud and the RV's wheels are spinning and mud flies out and it hits Daniel Stern and nothing's really happening, but you're kind of enjoying yourself. And I think this movie hits a similar point at about the halfway from basically the halfway point onwards. This movie is just kind of uh, spinning its wheels and shooting mud out from a plotting perspective. But because some of the things you just described... I, I was actually re-watching it um, earlier today just to like kind of get my bearings on the plot and some of the things that were going on. Like Some of those things happen in the last 15 minutes, and some of them happen around the halfway mark, and there's not really a way to distinguish like when they happen because the, the story doesn't really proceed all that much once they kind of get there. There's a few things that happen, but they're not necessarily in a cohesive order. Right. A lot of it is episodic. And you really do lose your sense of time watching it. But 
the the point is that the Pipers are hanging out with the Orleys, and George is ambivalent at best. But at one point, the doctor does ask how George and Bess first met. And this is where we get the yard sale scene. Because it flashes back to what I would assume is the 70s or the late 60s. Yeah, Daniel Stern is wearing a wig, which is kind of the key thing here. Yeah, he's got like a long curly wig and a bandana. And then the wife, the soon-to-be wife, is wearing like something that Elizabeth Olsen would have in one of the period scenes in WandaVision. I don't know, it's like a hippie, like a Stevie Nicks dress or something. But he is having a yard sale selling off his mother's possessions. I guess his mom has just died. And she is drawn to this chair in the front yard, which he is selling for $10, and she offers 5 saying, oh, I'm just going to use it for firewood anyway. And George, wanting to make a romantic gesture, I guess, or just to be helpful, hauls the chair up onto his porch and chops it into splinters. And Bess breaks down crying at this sight. And that's the yard sale scene. That's how they met. So that was the yard sale scene. How did it strike you? You had hyped it up a little bit. and I, That's fair. <laughs> it's interesting because I think the thing that ultimately struck me most about it is it's got the Rashomon effect of we ultimately see it in a different light from a different perspective with people acting kind of the same but also kind of different in the future which i thought was pretty creative as we kind of learn more about it in the moment i thought it was kind of charming i wish it had gone even more on making it romantic like i I feel like it got most of the way there but it could have really made me feel the attraction between the two characters a little bit more but i'm curious to hear if you have any specific things about it that you love no i i totally agree I don't know why this is so seared into my memory. And looking back, I do agree that the first version of the scene that we see should have played up that she was like won over by what he did because you don't get that sense here. It just seems like a weird interaction that they had and you're left kind of wondering why they ended up together after after this. Right. But maybe I'm just colored by the reveal later. (laughs) And the years of hype, perhaps. And the years of hype. The years of this being the only thing that I remembered from the movie. (laughs) The Piper kids go off on a camping trip with the Earleys. Because he says he's taking his sons on, like, an adventure excursion. And they're going to rough it in the woods. And so the kids talk George into letting them go off on this side trip. Of course, George wants everybody to be passionate about this Civil War trip he's trying to recreate. And here in, you know, the early third act of the film is where everything's coming apart at the seams. And he's he's not getting his way. He's drifting apart from his family instead of the ostensible goal, which is to bring them all together. Around this point, Bess blurts out the real 
version, the alternate B-side of this Rashomon scene of what was really going on at that yard sale. Because as they're driving alone, just the two of them in the RV, she says that the chair she spotted was made by Thomas Jefferson. Because she has this extensive knowledge of antique furniture, she was able to recognize it. And also the fact that it had gaudy TJ initials, like, stuck to the chair. They were like press-on prop letters. But she recognized it, and apparently this chair was worth $750,000. And she offered him five. (laughs) And then she watched this fortune-making chair be destroyed in front of her eyes. By the way, 750000 in 1997, which I guess this probably would have been filmed. I guess I could do 1998 when it aired. But that would be upwards of $1.2 million. Yeah, a lot of money. But how how do you feel about this reveal? <laughs> it made me cringe. It's like, well, so I had a little bit of a reaction to the fact that this was actually an antique and he just kind of goofily chopped it up. I don't know. I was on Daniel Stern's side. It's like he was doing some nice gesture, you know? Yeah, it's it's entirely the mom's fault. Right. Because she's trying to cheat him. She knows this thing is worth a lot of money, and she wants to cheat him as much as she possibly can, that she's going to nickel and dime him for $5 when she stands to make 750000 Right. Oh, I don't want to pay $20. Yeah. But see, there was another detail here that stuck out of me. So one point of this is that to like amp up the connection element is that the reason that she gets emotional when he chops it up and gives it to her is because, oh, your mom recently died. And this is a I guess it was an estate sale or something like that for his mom. And that's why she's reacting emotionally. And she says, oh, that was actually a lie. And then they eventually get married. So there's really one of three things that could have been true. One is that she had, in fact, recently died, the mom. And just that that was not why she got upset. Two is that the mom had died some point earlier than that, which I feel like at some point Daniel Stern would have been like, hey, you know, your mom died like five years before you bought the chair. Why were you emotional buying the chair? If your mom had died five years before, or my headcanon, this is what it was. The mom actually died after she bought the chair. And, and so Daniel Stern, I don't know, maybe didn't piece it together, but like you got emotional because your mom died, but she actually hadn't died yet. I feel like either Daniel Stern didn't think about this very much or the writers of the movie didn't think about it very much. Well, it's like the Back to the Future thing where, you know, they decide to name their kid Marty. But they don't remember the guy they met who was named Marty, who looked exactly like him. (laughs) That's a good point. You know, you just don't think about these things years down the road after you get married. I guess. It's in the rearview mirror. So she kind of storms off to be by herself after she's told the true tale of this chair. And uh, not to harp on it too long, but it's kind of the scenario you were talking about with Shapely in It Happened One Night. Where if one character knows that he stands to make a ton of money, 
It's like, what is the cost of sharing that information with one additional person if it helps ensure the delivery of the money? That's a very astute connection that I would not have come up with on my own. You know, it's like, we can each make, we could each make, you know, $400,000 and not risk the chair being destroyed if I am upfront and honest about this. <laughs> yeah, or just buy it at the price that it's listed and like... Don't mention firewood. <laughs> because once firewood is on the brain, you just gotta start chopping. I guess. But now George is alone in the RV, and he finally makes it to the key battlefield featured in Jeremiah's diaries. And he strolls up to the tour group and is listening to the tour guide and mentions that his ancestor, Jeremiah Piper, fought here. And all along we've heard about the escapades of Lieutenant Jeremiah Piper and how he, like, saved his whole platoon by carrying them through a firefight like Forrest Gump. But now we get, like, another Rashomon moment because the tour guide tells the true story of Private Jeremiah Piper and how he was a big coward and went AWOL, and, like, not only that, but ran off with, like, all the unit's supplies, leading to a Confederate victory or something. There's also, like, an implication that he stole the draft of the Gettysburg Address from President Lincoln, which seemed like a little bit of a stretch to me. <laughs> yeah, because he's, like, faking an injury at a hospital, and Abraham Lincoln comes in... <laughs> and Paul Giamatti robs him. He takes his wallet. So this is a scoundrel. He is not the vaunted hero that he's been held up to be. So now two crushing realizations in one day. Daniel Stern's whole life is a lie. And he has got to pick up the pieces going forward. I think it's funny that after this point, whenever he shows up, Paul Giamatti's fancy uniform is now gone. <laughs> I, I just, I'm also very skeptical that he would be this obsessed with the Civil War and his ancestor in particular, and that he would just not be aware of this as a well regarded historical anecdote, you know? Right. He never sought out additional sources, J just the one book he was good with. Off on the camping trip with the Earlies. The doctor's sinister side is coming out. Really abruptly, too. He goes from the guy who you're suspicious of to the insane man of the course of one scene transition. Right, so he, like, throws all their food away and insists that they're going <laughs> to scavenge off the land. You know, including he throws away the Piper children's stuff. Which is an extremely brazen move to begin with. Yeah. I did find something amusing in these scenes about the the kids of the Doctor. So Ryan Reynolds and whoever the little brother is played by. They just kind of played it as like a exasperated annoyance. Dad, let's not do this again. Come on. And I, I don't know. I just found something amusing about how they had they were just kind of annoyed at their dad rather than like, yeah, they're, they're used to all his shenanigans. But then it goes off the deep end when Josh brings the wrong kind of firewood 
presumably with no explanation ahead of time. And the doctor freaks out and is yelling at him. Get white birch! Gotta get white birch! (laughs) And so Josh, like, runs away into the night. But round about this time, Stork has made it to (laughs) the Early's house. And nobody's around. And he's, you know, in a fit. He's ready to get some revenge. And just kind of falls asleep angrily on the porch and slumps into a chair. (laughs) I want to watch the stork cut of this movie where we just see what is stork's experience with this film? That's right. We need the waiting for Godot or the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead where it's the whole story from stork. I want to point out, I've complained about some bad facial hair. I think Stork takes it to a new level. It's it's like he's trying to grow it but can't grow it. It's just this this wispy ghost of a out of what do you call it? A goatee and mustache. And it's just you couldn't look worse if you tried, basically, with facial hair. <laughs> it's like the stork line. It's it you need to be above the stork line for facial hair. It's like the minimum bar for for what you could possibly look like. (laughs) All the disparate story threads are coming together now. George comes to pick up his family, but Josh has run off in the night, and he's gotten pinned down by a log. Like, he slipped down an embankment, and the log rolled down after him, and, like landed on his leg so he's stuck and watching this this is another moment that i realized was burned into my brain and has probably come to me at moments and been like what was that moment what was that movie where the kid had the log roll on top of him i was like oh it's this one and it gets paired with that movie where a chair gets chopped up at a yard sale and that movie where a biker gang pounds on the side of an rv (laughs) But I wonder, is this the tourist trap? Oh, the tree is the trap, the wilderness, the temptation of a life where you have some more adventurous and romantic father. Is that, in fact, the tourist trap that they fall into? I like it. Yes. But Josh remembers one of the lessons that his father taught him about the Civil War which is that rockets were used for communication and to signal that you need help. So he happens to have a bottle rocket that George bought for him earlier, and he sets it off. And actually, they call these bottle rockets. They say bottle rockets multiple times, but this is like a mortar. Like it shoots a firework up into the sky. It's, it's more substantive than just a bottle rocket. But this took me back to a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Titanic. You know, it's a universal signal that if somebody sends up a rocket, it's a distress call and you need to seek them out. Right. This was actually in the, the British one, A Night to Remember, but not in the James Cameron one. Right. Where there was that other boat. Uh, they're sending up the thing that means, hey, we need immediate assistance. But they probably don't mean that. (laughs) So let's just stay over here. Uh, But 
here in Taurus Trap, people have learned their lesson, I guess, because George does come to respond to the rocket call and gets his little Superman moment where he lifts the log off his son. <laughs> and realistically, if I were in Daniel Stern's situation, there's like eight people standing around. I would say, hey, come and help me move this log. Right. But this, you know, this is an important moment for George as a character. It's where he gets to be the hero. Yeah. One thing that caught my eye here was, I like... I feel like if you get to the point where a log is crushing your leg to the point where you can't pull it out and then your leg gets out, there should be some damage at that point. It, it You can't just be, oh, well, my leg isn't stuck anymore. Oh, well, I guess I can walk around and I'm just fine now. It's like, I feel like a bone would have been shattered or something at that point. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah, there there should be some kind of makeup at least. But, I don't know, it, it was just enough to form, like, an ankle cuff or something. Like, too big to fit a foot past and too heavy to lift off. I suppose. I haven't had too many heavy things fall on my leg. I feel like legs are pretty strong. They're one of the stronger muscles in the body. Like, I feel like you'd be pretty good at getting your leg out if it was stuck under something. The only way you wouldn't be able to if it would be if it was really severe. And at that point, I don't know if you would just walk away unscathed. What I'm getting here is that we need to start doing like a Mythbusters segment of the podcast where we <laughs> recreate key scenes from the films. And maybe that's, you know, you're looking for boosted ratings. Maybe that's where we need to take the podcast in. <laughs> throw our bodies into it. Doing dangerous stunts. Yeah. The goods, jackass edition. And so now the family's back together again. George is showing his true colors as a good guy and not an insane, scary guy like other dad. But everybody reconciles in this scene that gave me, like, the same energy as at the end of Back to the Future, where Biff is just hanging around the McFly house, like, polishing their car, <laughs> despite having attempted to rape the mom. Like, I don't know, he's shown himself to be this unhinged verging on maniac. <laughs> and, no, everything is good now, because he can mend a leg. He even has this monologue where he's like, your dad punching me in the face because I was a crazy person was actually a really good thing to happen to me. Which... I don't know. I kind of like the trope where the villain becomes the the doofy guy who realizes he used to be a jerkwad. If you have a villain and you need them to come around and realize they were they were wrong, the easiest way to spin that is to make them an idiot. And that's kind of what's going on here. The peak of that is you have Luke in the OC who plays the main villain for like, I don't know, 10 episodes and then he becomes kind of a ally of the heroes. But how do you reconcile the fact that he was a really bad person and then now is friends? Well, let's just make him an idiot because he didn't realize that what he was doing was all that bad. And now we're going to spin it differently. I feel like that's something that happens a lot when you want to have, have a bad guy make amends. 
Yeah. Maybe there was a scene we never saw where Biff mended George McFly's leg. <laughs> Something like that. But this scene takes place at the early household. So this is where they run into Stork again. Sitting out there on the porch. And, like, in his sleep, his... You know, he just kind of slumped down on this chair and broke an arm off of the chair, not of his body. But Stork gets his confrontation moment. You know, Rachel, is it him or me? Are you going to pick Ryan Reynolds or (laughs) Stork? (laughs) 24-year-old me with Stork Gage facial hair. And she says she's not going to choose either of them, I guess. What she explicitly says is that she's going to college but i guess what she means is she is not interested in pursuing things with either of them i i suppose i don't need to elaborate to say that this moment didn't really work for me it's like i i feel like it's it's like there were two writers or perhaps more than two writers on the character of stork because my reading at this point of stork is that he is the guy that the girl needs to get over to realize that, hey, she can be with this better guy and she can move on with her life outside of this little bubble that she's lived in prior to this. But then she gives like this weird monologue where, where she's with neither of them and instead is going to college. Uh, I don't know. It landed kind of with a thud for me. I guess maybe you could read it that she's like doing what her dad wants. Like she's won over by this show of confidence and competence from the dad and because he values education maybe that's why they settled on this beat maybe but why have the ryan reynolds character be so likable and heroic then it's true (laughs) this is a scattershot film uh i was not ready to rank it very highly so we'll see where things fall when the cookie crumbles but George has got his newly strong family unit in tow and they all climb back into the RV to head back the other way. And Jeremiah, the ghost, Paul Giamatti salutes and Daniel Stern says, ah, I don't need you to be my hero anymore. And Jeremiah says, no, George, you're mine. And they are driving off into the distance and just before they departed dr early gave them the chair on the porch that stork broke and as they're driving away we get like a raiders of the lost ark last moment reveal that this chair is another one of the thomas jefferson chairs (laughs) that caught me by surprise I really like this ending. I think the chair is a very compelling MacGuffin. And I don't know if it was utilized to its full potential in this film. But I like it. So what do you imagine happens immediately after the end of this film, Dan? Following the obvious path here, they get home. They're kind of rebonded as a family. Holy shit, we got this this chair that's worth three quarters of a million dollars or was what 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Now it's probably million and a half dollars. 
Except it's even more. Because you chopped up the chair, now this is the only one in existence. So now we can sell this for $10 million. And then they sell it for $10 million. And now they live a rich lifestyle. Except they're not properly equipped for being rich. So now the sequel of this movie is what happens to this family when they get a sudden influx of cash and don't know how to deal with that. Oh, man. And they lose touch all over again. In a different way. I like it. That's a satisfying ending. I was going to say, you know, there's also the possibility that, like, they pass under an overpass because they've got it strapped to the top of the RV (laughs) in a very awkward way. When it seems like if you have a mobile home, you would just bring your chair in your home. It's it's like a house. Yeah. Why is it strapped on top? <laughs> I don't store things by putting them on my roof. I store them by bringing them into my house. <laughs> That's just me. Yeah. Different strokes. I mean, if I was walking around the neighborhood and saw something strapped to the roof, I would have questions. And so we've talked now for longer than I thought I might have material for about the 1998 TV movie Tourist Trap. Dan, did you have any observations, things you liked, things you struggled with as you watched this film that you'd like to discuss before we arrive at our ratings? So I think as far as TV movies go, for me, this is pretty close to the upper end of what a TV movie can be. It's still thrown together quickly and doesn't have the high attention to detail and production levels that you would expect of a cinematic feature release. But it's got pedigree in the sense of having a really compelling cast and moments that landed for me, both in the comedic level. There's just a lot of little smaller gags that made me smile or laugh. Partially as a dad, there's one moment when he's trying to get his 12-year-old son listed as 11 years old so he can get the junior discount on his 11-year-old son, who's actually 12. And I just related to that moment very much. And there was a lot of moments like that that made me smile. Oh, and that happens when they go to a Wild West town, which is like in Virginia. I don't know that there are many i mean it's a it's like a hokey tourist attraction but even so i don't know that there's many of those in virginia yeah there were a lot of moments that i liked in miniature one is that there's a moment where daniel stern gets annoyed with paul giamatti's character and starts fighting him and so we first see him actually fighting with paul giamatti but in fact paul giamatti is a figment of his imagination So then they actually show him fighting nobody. And this is a payoff on something that I've been dreaming of ever since I saw the movie Fight Club. Because I'm about to spoil Fight Club. If you haven't seen Fight Club, skip ahead 30 seconds. But in Fight Club, we know that one of the main characters is just in the head. Brad, Is it Brad Pitt that's in the head or is it? Yeah, Brad Pitt is in the head of Edward Norton. Edward Norton, right. So I always imagine what would it look like to the people who saw them starting the original Fight Club. And I finally got my answer here of what that would actually look like. So that was pleasing to me. One last point is that I feel like there something is awakening within me, just in general, when I watch movies, that 
I am susceptible to movies where dadhood of a fairly normal family is celebrated and honored. You're, you're a good dad. That's something we're going to cheer for and we're going to salute and we're going to show it in action. So there's a movie, it's called Love, Simon. That's like a romantic comedy for teens about a boy coming out as gay and eventually meeting someone. But the moments that really stuck with me are the parents reacting to the teen coming out. And like, there's this scene where this, the dad of that character, the main character, Simon, basically says, I accept you for who you are and I still love you and we're gonna be a great family. And I was like bawling tears as I watched this movie. I think I am just personally susceptible to good dads in movies. And so the moment where Paul Giamatti is like saluting Daniel Stern as his hero for being a good dad, sticking up for his family, figuring out how to raise his family, that got to me. It made me kind of emotional. Like, I think in life, all I want is for Paul Giamatti to give me a salute for my own dadhood. That would be like a life dream accomplished. I would know that I'd made it. And so that that landed for me. And I don't know, it's it's still a TV movie, and I think my rating will reflect that, but it's near the upper limit of what a TV movie that still has all the corniness associated with a TV movie and the low production values could be for me. Wow. And one last good thing. I enjoyed the score, surprisingly solid for a TV movie. It had like banjo stuff and piccolo battle music. And I don't know, it, it, it didn't feel very cheap to me. It felt like kind of creative and fun on a low budget to me, I guess. Those were some of my, my positive things. I'm sorry if I stole some of your thunder there. No, I enjoyed hearing that. <laughs> and I'm glad you got something out of this movie. I wasn't sure I wasn't sure anybody would. But you mentioned the score. Another movie that falls into the category of VHS exclusives that I remember certain things about them distinctly, but struggled to track down for a long time is 1993's Beanstalk, which I might have to queue up as another episode at some point in the future. But that one has also got a kind of cheap score that I still find compelling. And my friend I played it for described it as low-budget adventure. <laughs> I, I think that would be a great name for a travel agency. Oh, I like that, yeah. It's like, if, if you were going to embark on a cross-country road trip, you might want to stop at low-budget adventure. Right. So, some, some final thoughts before I issue a rating. I don't know if it holds up as well as it's burned into my brain. I am glad you enjoyed it. I think it is a good start-of-summer film. Makes me want to hit the road. But there's a weird mix of story elements. You know, it's a road movie, but it's also like a Civil War movie and there's ghosts and there's an antique treasure hunt with a chair as like the central lost ark thing that people are after i don't know it's it's a patchwork 
and it has strong moments, but I think any of these themes you could like describe and be led to a different movie in the catalog if you were not sure what film you were looking for for perhaps a very long time. The moment that got to me was he kind of leads up to he's searching for his grandfather's I guess it's a watch or something and it's kind of built up to be what I thought was going to be like the climax of this movie and then we're basically at the 45 minute mark so that's barely past the midpoint of the movie and they get to the battle site and he's like oh well if I'm to trust the journal the watch will be right here in this tree and he reaches in and he pulls out hey the watch was right here in this tree and then we don't hear anything about the watch for the rest of the movie it's never mentioned again. That's right. I, I had forgotten. That felt a little off to me. <laughs> well, with that abrupt note, are we ready to rate? <laughs> Sequentially, not in order here. Did you notice when the RV hit a lamppost that the lamppost caught on fire? <laughs> what was my takeaway from that? Is it that these, these lampposts are powered by gas? Or something. Yeah, it's a gas. I mean, you hear when they knock it over, you hear the whoosh of okay. a gas line. So, yeah, gas lamp posts. That That's all. I, I was just curious about that. I, I spent the next five minutes after that happened wondering why a lamp post would catch on fire if it got hit by a car. But that was another big laugh. I was not expecting the sudden jet of flame. <laughs> I feel like they burned some of their budget on that. They're like, oh, this will be great. They'll hit the they'll hit the post and then it'll catch on fire. And then everyone who watched is like, why did that happen? That's not how lampposts work. <laughs> lampposts do not work that way. Yeah, no, I've hit most of my points, so we can move to the is it good section. Well, you are our guest, Dan, so you get to be the first to tell us. So... We have an eight point is it good scale ranging from a one out of eight, which is a very not good up to an eight out of eight, which is our masterpiece rating, which we call tour day good. So is Taurus trap 1998 good? I had a lot of affection towards this movie. It's got some stars. I really like it's got moments that land it's also just a TV movie with a lot of cheap production values and half-assed script edits. I was smiling, and I want to support Daniel Stern in any way that I can. I'm going to give this a 4 out of 8. Goodish. It's not quite good. It's nearly good. It's about as good as a TV movie could be for me that that doesn't kind of transcend the cultural stasis, I guess, you, you need something like High School Musical to surpass that 4 out of 8 if you're just a TV movie. But for me, this is a high-ish 4 out of 8. I, I was smiling and enjoying myself and also acknowledging that this is not exactly what the average consumer would call art. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could bring it to your attention. So going into this, I had been thinking recently... What would a two out of eight movie look like? 
because so far neither of us has given a movie on the show a two. <laughs> and I guess of our official episodes, not a one. But if you listen to our joint coverage of the film Robert from 2015 on the podcast Buzzed On Movies, uh, that movie was about a haunted doll and it was not good. And so we, we gave that one, in fact, a one out of eight, which we've labeled very not good. So we have technically given out ones before. Two, though, not good. What would that look like? And coming to our broadcast tonight, I was almost ready to bring the hammer down and declare this one not good. It, I think you could call it forgettable. If you were not grabbed as a child by the mystique of the treasure chair in the legendary yard sale scene, that you might not remember this movie. I think a great many people never remembered this movie. It was a chore to reunite myself with it. But Dan has brought me around a little bit. So... I do see merit here. I think maybe the things that stuck with me stuck with me for a reason. And I'm glad I have a VHS copy, even if you can track it down on YouTube. So where things end, I think I am settling on a low four. Goodish. So maybe just above where uh, Last Day of Summer ended with... Uh, a three. This is a little bit above that. Yeah, for me, this is above Last Day of Summer, mostly based on the casting. I really like the cast here. There's no Jensen Panettieres that we had to deal with in Last Day of Summer. I could see if you're less into a Paul Giamatti random appearance in a TV movie and less affectionate towards Daniel Stern that you would drop this down below where it was, it stood in my, my brain, but I, I enjoyed it and I am glad that we got a chance to watch something a little off kilter like it. Good. That's what I aim to bring to the table. And, and who knows, maybe someday Paul Giamatti, will do a collab with Jansen Panettiere <laughs> or, or maybe Woody Allen will <laughs> fill out my casting sheet. So, Dan, what's the next stop on our road trip? What movie will we be sharing next? So, I think uh, if we can work out the logistics, we are going to have a very special episode for our next episode. I am the oldest of six siblings, and one of my siblings, who is number four, he's my younger brother, named Will, he lives in Japan right now. He's lived in Japan for pushing four years now and he has expressed an interest in joining the podcast and I think we're finally going to make that happen I asked him to recommend a movie and he is going to have us watch Tokyo Drifter from 1966 I don't know anything about this movie except that my brother wants us to watch it and he says it's fun and inspired some modern directors so I think it'll be a good watch, and I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Tokyo Drifter from 1966. 
Me too. It'll be an interesting challenge arranging the schedule. Right, because he's, I think, 13 hours off from us. So <laughs> it'll be, I think what will end up happening is it'll be late evening for us and early morning for him. Okay. And I hope that you will join us, listeners, here again on The Goods, a film podcast. Thanks for listening.